Okay, if you got your Bibles, you can open them to uh, Matthew chapter 17. And if you're a little kid, you can go to children's church. Yes, you can go. Just take off. You don't need to wait for me. We're going to finish chapter 17 today. See, we're just racing through this book. Let me pray. Father, as we approach your word, we thank you for the wonder of it, the marvelous teaching of our Lord, his life, his example, the things he did on this earth to demonstrate who he was. And as we look at this remarkable little miracle today, we just ask you to help us to understand what it means for us. In Christ's name, amen. It has been said that sometimes the best things come in small packages. Ever heard that expression? I think that's especially true for women. Their eyes kind of light up if you have a little package instead of a big. If you have a big package, they think you're giving them a toaster oven. But if you, (laughs) and they go, oh, thanks. But if you have a little package and it's all beautiful, they think there's something really wonderful in there. Sometimes there actually is. Well, today um, we're going to talk about a little kind of miracle. It's kind of a small package, if you will. It's a little story um, kind of just in there. It's one of the most wondrous, though, if you really stop to think about it. Um, Not big, but personal and precious uh, for the Apostle Peter. So um, we're coming to this story in Matthew's Gospel. It's very unique. Only Matthew records this particular incident. The other Gospels don't mention it. But it has some really interesting features to it. It's the kind of story that it's really easy to kind of gloss over. You're reading through and just kind of keep on going. But it's worth stopping on and uh, thinking about. So if you take your time, it sort of overwhelms you when you think about the implications of it, both for who Jesus is and um, what it represents about him. So it starts in verse 24. It says, when they came to Capernaum, we've talked a lot about Capernaum, Those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? It's one of the most touching Bible verses in the whole (laughs) whole scripture. Now, it's kind of an interesting question. They're, They're asking Peter. They just stop him and they say, hey, does your teacher, Jesus, does he pay the two drachma tax? You say, what is that? Well, Let's step back just for a second and remember where we are. This is the gospel portion, the portion in Matthew's gospel where he's, Jesus is turning toward the disciples. He's been doing all of this public ministry and he's still doing that, but the emphasis in the text is how he's training his men to take over for him. So there's a lot of apostle stories now. And this is a very intimate one, just Jesus and Peter. But... Um, and this only involves Peter, the others aren't mentioned at all, but he learns some pretty wonderful things here, I think, about Christ, and and the issue revolves around paying of taxes. Now, that might be why it's in this gospel, because remember Matthew's job before he uh, became an apostle? Tax collector, right? So, like, hey, I've got a tax collector story. I'm going to put it in there. He's got a good one, because Peter told him about this, and if I ever write a gospel, I think I'm going to... No, it actually sort of fits in here beautifully, but... um, Anyway, that might be why he uh, writes it. But he, he never collected this kind of tax. Matthew was a government tax collector, a, a Jew working for the Roman government, which made him extremely unpopular in a social level, but um, made him a perfect example of God's grace. But these guys are collecting a temple tax. The two drachma tax is a temple tax. This is a tax commanded by Moses, the law of Moses, 
It's called atonement money, and it represents uh, a person's recognition of a need for redemption and uh, through sacrifices. And the money itself supported the whole sacrificial system built around the tabernacle and later the temple. And it's found in Exodus chapter 30. I'm gonna go to read it for you, the actual law. Exodus 30, verse 11, it says, the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so there will be no plague among them when you number them. So it's sort of a um, God saying, you know, bad things could happen if you don't acknowledge your need. So everybody, when they take a census, everybody's got to pay this ransom, if you will, uh, to the Lord because sinners deserve destruction and death. And since they're not getting that, they're acknowledging that it's God's favor that's allowing them to continue on. Verse 13, it says, this is what, ev- what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garaz, just in case you forgot that. <laughs> half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel because we're all equally sinners. When you give a contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So it's a half shekel tax. In New Testament times, that would be the same as a didrachma, a, a two drachma coin, which is a Greek silver coin that was used in the New Testament era. So this is long after Moses, right? 1400 years later. So for the average person, it was basically the equivalent of a couple of days wages. You know, how many days wages do we give our government? A lot, months, months of wages <laughs> go to our government in taxes. But um, this was a pretty small tax, actually. But it was just an acknowledgement. It helped support the, the priests and the sacrificial system. Now, Jesus, as we've seen through the Gospels, he travels a lot. So he's not always around. He's not home. His headquarters, he's set up in Capernaum. So he's just now coming back to Capernaum. And he's been traveling all over, preaching all over Israel. But his base of operation is in Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. So at the end of one of these um, preaching tours, they return to Capernaum, and the tax collectors see Peter. Either they went to his house, or they saw him in the street or something, and they, and they kind of got his attention, and because um, they've not been around, and there's no record if they have of Jesus paying the temple tax. So once they see Peter, they pull him aside, and they ask him, they said, what about your teacher? Is he not going to pay the temple tax, well, he hasn't been around for one thing, but um, they're wondering if he has a problem with it. Does Jesus have a problem paying the temple tax, supporting the temple tax, because Jesus had a lot of rather unique teaching things, and he often conflicted with the Pharisees and stuff, so they want to know if he's pro or anti paying the tax according to the law of Moses. So um, does he not pay it, and Peter says yes, he does. So, sure, he pays it. And now Peter had probably seen Jesus pay it or had heard Jesus teaching about taxes and knew that he supported um, paying your taxes, so, uh, which he does do in the Bible. But he, he decides to go see Jesus to remind him that they haven't paid this temple tax. And the temple tax collectors are 
asking about it, right? So he goes to where Jesus is. So G- Peter's probably in his own house. Jesus is in his house, headquarters house, and Peter travels over to him. And when he walks in, Jesus just starts asking him a question. And the question is related to this very issue. So Peter doesn't even get a chance to say, by the way, uh, Jesus just starts talking. And he, so verse 25, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. That's an important point for the kind of unique, miraculous nature of this thing that's gonna happen. What do you think, Simon? So Peter walks in ready to talk about temple tax and Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or the poll tax? Do they collect it from their sons or from strangers? Now notice it says he spoke first. So he's not responding to Peter. He's starting the conversation and it just happens to be about taxes. And the question Jesus asks is pretty fascinating because the implications of it are kind of amazing if you think about it at all. So Matthew's gospel, you know, the main theme is to present Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the King, the coming King of Israel who will one day rule the whole world. So the question goes directly to that issue of who he is. When kings collect taxes, do they make their sons pay taxes? Or are their sons the beneficiaries of the collected taxes? Well, it's always they're the beneficiaries. Kings never in the ancient world, and I don't think even today, does, does Prince Charles pay taxes? I doubt it. But um, he's supported by the whole tax structure, right? But um, they don't pay taxes. Their children don't pay taxes. Their children are supported by taxes. The king's whole family is supported by taxes. So secular authorities collect taxes to support themselves and their children. They don't tax their children. So Peter says, verse 26, from strangers. That's who they get the taxes from people that aren't in their family. Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. And that's right, the sons are exempt. So what's that gotta do with the temple tax? Think about it, think about it. The sons are exempt. So he's starting to open Peter's mind a little bit with this little exchange. Now. Peter knows who Jesus is in chapter 16. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is opening his mind a little bit more about what that really means. Um, You know, son of God can mean a lot of things. Uh, Is he talking about his very essence? Is it talking about um, an honorific sort of title? Um, We're gonna learn more about who he is as the son of God here. But we're still talking about a temple tax, right? We're not talking about a king's taxes. Peter came to talk about a temple tax tax and Jesus is saying that his relationship to the temple is different than everybody else's relationship to the temple Jesus on several occasions referred to the temple as my father's house right so if Jesus was the son of a king on earth he would would say I'm I'm That's my father's house. This kingdom is my father's house. This palace is my father's house. So Jesus is talking about the temple as his father's house. So he's God's son in a way that makes him the Lord of the temple. He's over it. In fact, he said earlier in Matthew's gospel that something greater than the temple is here. 
kind of letting people figure out he's talking about himself. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And the Messiah is very much greater. So he is God's son, the only begotten, and the temple is his father's. In fact, everything that goes on there, all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies and all the ritual is anticipating the sacrificial work of God's son. So it's all pointing to him and he's over it. So it's all about him. So it would in fact be rather silly for people to pay the temple tax because he's the son of the one who's worshiped in the temple. It's the father's temple and he is the son so he's the Lord of the temple. Now, he's not making this a public pronouncement. It's, he's just telling Peter this. So it's a, it's a quiet truth at uh, this particular moment. It's one of those quiet moments with the master where Jesus affirms and reminds Peter of who he is and and deepens his understanding of of what that means. And then I have to think as an undoubtable, just ironclad confirmation of his person, Jesus tells Peter to pay the tax, but he tells him in a really strange way. Verse 27, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, some people find this miracle kind of silly. I mean, it's a strange miracle, right? Um, Why such an odd thing? But you can't divorce it from what Jesus is teaching Peter here uh, about his sonship. I mean, that's really the key to the whole thing here. So he is so uniquely the son of God, the son by nature, the very essence of God, not simply some sort of honorific title as a son of God. He's the son so truly that the temple is beneath him. And if you think about this strange miracle just a little bit, you see how completely divine he is. Somewhere, somehow, someone dropped a coin and it fell into the water. And this fish grabbed it, saw the shiny object and ate it. And this fish has been swimming around, was it last week, a year ago? We don't know. But this fish has been swimming around with a coin in his mouth. And nobody knows how long the fish has had it there, but it's interesting that Jesus knew it was there. That's what's kind of remarkable about this. Not only did he know it was there, but he knew if Peter went fishing on his own time frame, he doesn't say you have to throw in the hook at 3 p.m. or 6 two minutes after six or anything, he just says, go down and throw in the hook. And he just knows that fish is going to latch onto that hook and when Peter opens up that fish's mouth, there's going to be a coin in there, a certain coin. Um, Most people don't know things like that. It's kind of amazing. So when you're talking about him as the son of God, he, he has access to everything there is to know. If he wants to know something, he can know it and it's an, it's infinite divine knowledge that is available to him and that makes him really unique, right? Um, So not only did he know it was there, but he knew he would summon the fish from a distance when Peter threw in the hook. Jesus knew the, the fish was going to jump on there. So the coin is easily retrieved. So the coin is, is a stator, which is a coin worth four drachmas, and a half a shekel is two drachmas, so this coin is exactly the right amount to pay for Jesus and Peter, so it's, if it's the perfect coin as well. So in some ways, this is a really small sort of thing. It's like a little miracle, but when you think about the boundless knowledge involved and the command over the tiny details of events and creatures in the world, it's, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? It's kind of amazing. 
Very amazing, actually. It's astounding. So you and I personally would benefit greatly if you thought about this miracle in terms of your own life. God is sovereign over every little detail in life. He knows absolutely everything that's going on. There's nothing that happens to you, his precious creature made in his image, that he doesn't know with great detail and intimacy. There's not one thing he doesn't know and understand. He knows where coins are in fish's mouths. He knows everything. He knows everything. So he's in control, and he controls everything. Not the tiniest detail is absent from his knowledge or from his sovereign will. And that's exactly why you can trust him. That's why you can trust him. So the potential for blessing your own heart by simply understanding this is enormous. And even all corruption and all evil is limited by his sovereign control. So no matter what happens, it's under God's providential care. So God's got this, as we like to say to each other. Well, he does. He has everything. So there's no, um, no lack there. Now, we haven't addressed why he pays the tax, because he kind of said he's exempt. Didn't, don't you get that from the question, what he says about, so the sons are exempt, right? So he shouldn't have to pay it. So why does he pay it? That's another whole question. Well, he tells us in verse 27, this is why the son of the high king of heaven is paying a temple tax, lest we give them offense, verse 27. That is really interesting too. Very wisely, Jesus doesn't always assert all of his prerogatives as the son of God, all of his privileges. Doesn't always do that. He has this privileged position in the world because most people had no idea he was God's son. He knows it. Peter knows it. But not everybody gets that yet. And he doesn't want to cause an offense by breaking the law of Moses, even though he has a right to because he doesn't need to be redeemed, he doesn't need to make atonement for himself, he's not a sinner, and um, he's the Lord of the temple, but people don't get that yet about him. They, they don't understand that yet. So why start another argument over something that's pretty needless? Is Jesus embarrassed or dif- uh, reticent to have arguments with spiritual leaders? No, he's not. He's more than willing to tell the truth and get it in their face. But on this particular issue, he's like, that's an unnecessary argument to have about whether he should pay the temple tax or not. So he says, let's not offend. Let's just pay it. So, and in fact, I'll, I got a coin for you and for me. It's in a fish and all that stuff. So, um, so there's a really important principle here that, um, well, for one thing, Jesus never disrespects the temple to anyone and he's always honored the temple. He was accused of disrespecting the temple because he'd prophes- when he talked about his body, he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, remember that? And at his trial, they remembered that and they brought it up. He threatened to tear down the temple, even though he was talking about his own body. But Paul discusses this frequently in his letters, this idea of not causing offense, not being unnecessarily offensive to people. The gospel is an offense to sinners especially sinners that are not awakened by God's grace, right? So people are going to be offended when you tell them the truth about God and Jesus and the gospel and all those things. They're going to be upset, maybe sometimes angry. But, and that's okay. That's their, that's, it's our job to offend them with that. But to offend them unnecessarily, that's not our job. And that's really not something we need to do. So Paul kind of went out of his way not to offend people in a manner that was unnecessary. You might recall that. So if our actions 
cause confusion or um, a lack of clarity or needlessly turn somebody sort of away from hearing what we have to say about Jesus, we should just kind of pass on asserting our own ideas or rights or prerogatives. We don't have to have everything our way. We can let some things go. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's just letting stuff go. So it's kind of a radical idea, but it's based on a really simple principle that other people are more important than we are. And we should conduct our lives that way all the time. So I don't have to assert everything all the time, all of my rights, all my prerogatives all the time, if it's gonna unnecessarily cause an offense and turn somebody away from maybe listening to the gospel. I'd rather be stepped on than step on, is sort of the idea there. I, I don't wanna add things in the mix that are gonna turn people away, and Christians are really good at that, adding things in that are just sort of offensive, you know. Uh, our lingo sometimes is offensive, and our, our attitude might be offensive, uh, things like that. Sometimes the things, um, the way we talk about unbelievers is not conducive to winning them, it's more conducive to a smugness, and we shouldn't do that, you know, and I catch myself doing that sometimes. That's not what we're supposed to be like, or what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes things we do, or things we don't do, are based on lest we give offense. Remember what Paul said about, when he was, he says, to the Jews, I'm a Jew. I don't have to be a Jew anymore. I'm free from all that stuff. But when I'm with Jews, I do the Jew thing. And when I'm with Gentiles, I do the Gentile thing. If they're serving ham sandwiches, I'm right, I'm right there. Because I'm free from that. Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark chapter 7, verse 29 says. So Paul could eat a ham sandwich if he wanted to, but he wouldn't do it with, he's with Jews. Because why offend them? But he will do it with, when he's with pagans, because why offend them, Right? They put some pretty strange stuff on my plate in Uganda. I was like, <laughs> I'll eat it. <laughs> Never totally understood what some of it was. <laughs> it was actually pretty good. But that's how we are, right? You don't want to cause needless offense. Ambassadors have to do that all the time. And we're ambassadors of Christ, so we represent his kingdom. We want to convey good things to people. So um, even with regard to church, you know, some people have misunderstandings about Christianity and Christians that make it hard for them to listen to what we have to say. And in s- some things can be dispensed with that don't compromise any great truths or any significant thing about God's word. We can just let some things go, and sometimes we'll do that. Uh, one example is, I'm wearing a suit. I actually don't like to wear suits, but I'll wear them because for Sunday. But um, why, aren't, why aren't I wearing the, one of those cool collars? You know, a little white collar and a high collar thing and, and have a, so everybody knows I'm, I'm Mr. Reverend Wilson, right? When I walk down this day, they can just, oh, that guy, let's, let's get him. <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> keep your children away. No, um, it's, they, they, why, why don't we wear the distinctive clothing? Or even in church, even if I wear a suit around town or, if, or my jeans around town and I come here, why don't I, I grew up in a church where the guy wore the beautiful white long robe and kind of a black thing underneath that and it looked pretty cool. And this kind of really cool thing that laid over that with all kinds of markings on it. It was like different colors for different seasons of the year. And it was kind of special. Well, why don't we do that? Well, we don't want people to think that I'm special. You know, I know it's pretty obvious I'm not. But, <laughs> but, but if I wore all those cool clothes, you might think I was. No, we don't want to communicate that man up there is sort of a, a, a more holy or more acceptable to God or something like that. He's, he's different from us. There's a distinction between the clergy person and the laity, as they would put it, and we don't want people to think that. 
So it used to be everybody wore uniforms. You could tell, oh, that's a milkman, that's a carpenter. I mean, everybody kind of had the way they dressed, but that's not true anymore. So to have a clergy outfit, it doesn't make sense in our culture. So we don't do that kind of a thing anymore. Probably the most um, notorious thing about our church is we don't pass the plate. Ever noticed that? Probably noticed it the first time you came here. We don't pass the plate. Now, why don't we do that? Is it wrong to pass the plate and take up a collection in church? Of course it's not wrong. Why don't we do it? We don't do it because of an offense. Because charlatans on television have made it really hard for, and, and in life, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of charlatanism in religion and in Christianity and it's broadcast on television all the time and people believe that we're after their money. And I've had people in this community that say it Flat out, they're after our money. That's all they care about. That's all those religious people want is our money. So when you come here and nobody asked you for a penny, it's a statement. We're not gonna cause that uncomfortable feeling that we want your money because we don't care about that and we don't need your money. Now, is Christian giving important? Sure it is. But Christian giving is. But we don't need some unbeliever coming here and feeling like we need their money or we want their money. So we, so we got the box you know, and I love it when people say, how do you give around here? Because uh, it, it's a good thing. So we don't have to do that. We choose to do that. It's just an example of not giving an offense. And there's kind of an example here of Jesus doing that very thing. He could say, well, just go tell him I'm the son of God and we don't need to pay the temple tax. <laughs> but that would just cause another whole argument that doesn't need to be had because that's not where he is in this particular situation. So he lets that kind of a thing go. So... That's why. Same reason VBS for us is free. Is it wrong to charge for VBS to help pay for it, to have parents pay to go to VBS? It's not wrong. But we want it to be free because the gospel's free and it's an outreach. So all of our outreach things we want to have for free. And that's just the principle. Lest we give them offense. It's just thinking about those kinds of things. So it's for people who might not understand or who might take it the wrong way or something like that. That doesn't have to do with the truth of the gospel and Jesus Christ and everyone's need to repent and be saved by him. It doesn't have anything to do with that. You don't compromise that. But other things that might keep people away from hearing that or accepting that, yeah, we can let other things go. That kind of stuff. So Jesus will always give offense for the truth. He always does that. He's not afraid in any way, shape, or form about what people need to know. The gospel offends people, but it is their only hope of salvation, so that's never diminished or hidden or taken away but a needless offense there's no point for a needless offense it's kind of self-exalting and we don't have to do that kind of stuff so he doesn't act in a way unless it's for the truth that will either bless other people or expose error or something like that something important so I think it's also important with regard to this particular incident for Jesus to show people that he's obedient to the law of Moses so he keeps things he doesn't have to keep. Um, again, I think by way of not confusing people. So he models the, the behavior, the life of a righteous Jew amongst his people. He doesn't eat ham sandwiches. He doesn't do that. He's our example. So he doesn't have to pay a ransom for his soul, but he's gonna do the action because that's what a proper Jew does. Remember another case where he did that? Remember when he got baptized? John the Baptist, Jesus came to John the Baptist and, John, and he said, uh, baptize me, you know, and he, he, I'm ready. And John's like, you shouldn't be getting baptized by me. What did he say? I should be getting baptized by you because you're the son of God, right? 
And I'm just this guy. I'm just a prophet. So, um, but Jesus says, let's do it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says, let's fulfill righteousness. So the right thing for every Jew to do is to prepare for the way of the coming of the Messiah to acknowledge John's authority to go into the waters even though Jesus had nothing to repent of he still did it he said it fulfills all righteousness so this is another way I think of fulfilling righteousness he's doing the right thing so it's proper for a a Jewish male over 20 years old to pay the tax so he's paying the tax it's the right thing to do it's a wonderful example so letting go of rights and privileges and freedoms for a higher good is proper and he's not protecting his rights um He's more concerned about the message. And this is really an example of what I call selfless righteousness. It's not a righteousness that's self-exalting. It's a selfless righteousness. He's willing to give up things to do the right thing. Verse 27. We also marvelously see here in the story of this fish, um, like I said, his divinity through knowledge and providence. He's the Lord of all things. But let's consider kind of the unique features of this miraculous story here. So the miracle of finding the temple tax in a fish's mouth has some qualities that other miracles don't have. It's the only miracle that I can think of where Jesus actually meets his own need. In other words, he has to pay something and he does a miracle to help himself do it. Not that it's a big miracle or anything like that or he couldn't have come up with the, the thing, but it's, it's really rare. Remember when Satan tried to get Jesus to make bread? And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Satan kept trying to get Jesus to do things for himself And Jesus was, look, the Holy Spirit put me out here in the wilderness. If God wants to feed me, he'll provide something. I'm not going to exercise my divine power for myself and step out of the will of God. So he didn't do that. But this case, obviously this is different here. He's not stepping out of God's will. He's actually fulfilling God's will by keeping the law of Moses, for one thing. But the miracle, it's benefiting him in a really small way, personally. But uh, it has... Its real purpose is others-oriented. This is a selfless righteousness, like I was saying. It builds up Peter, because when Peter, the event itself is amazing, but for the rest of Peter's life, he's going to say, how did he know that coin was, I mean, that's like amazing. He's God, you know. He's always going to remember that that thing happened. It it was building him up. So it's not selfish. It's really others-oriented. And here we are today um, appreciating his, a providential knowledge of all things and his control of all things because that happened. So it wasn't about him. It was about us and about Peter. Second, this is the only recorded miracle I can think of that involves money. Um, if you turn on Christian TV, every miracle involves money. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Which is why we don't take a plate, pass the plate. But um, it's funny how many miracles today, people that are seeking involve money, Right? oh, Lord, bring me money and bring me stuff. And um, I'd really trust you if you let me win the lottery. I would help build the building if you let me win the lottery. Much of that money would go to building a church. You know, that kind of stuff. That's how people want their miracles. The acquisition of money and stuff is not a major theme of biblical miracles. In fact, it's quite the other way around. He, uh, he does provide provision for us for our daily needs, our daily bread, as the Lord's Prayer says. But uh, we, don't have, we don't have miracles involving all kinds of money, you know, finding a treasure or stuff like that. That just doesn't happen because he knows what we need to live. He knows what's too much, and everything's supposed to be done for him. So miracles aren't about giving us lots of money or anything like that. 
there is an extraordinary providence in God where he blesses us in unusual ways. He does do that. And sometimes that is financial. Obviously, you've probably all experienced that at some time in your life. One time, uh, many years ago, uh, Laura and I were uh, just getting started in life together, and a rather curious event happened to us. I, I was in seminary, and I was working a lousy, no-good job in Hollywood, and a, a low-paying job in Hollywood, which... Um, which I thought I would do for a couple of years, but ended up working for 14 years at that job. And uh, I was working there when I started here. But, um, and I was in seminary, and I had this very low-paying job. And our daughter, Carissa, was just born, so Laura stopped teaching school. She was being a mom. And uh, so we didn't have that income anymore, and we were just kind of making it. And we were living in a HUD apartment where the rent was really low, so I could pay the rent on my little crummy salary and have nothing else and just barely keep a car running and all that kind of stuff. Well, some friends of ours at our church, another church, another um, couple, who weren't any better off than we were as far as we could tell, they suddenly had a pile of money fall into their laps in a kind of an unusual way, a, a painful way. The husband of this couple got bit by a dog. And it kind of tore him up a little bit on his leg. And it wasn't horrible, life-threatening or anything like that, but it was a bad bite. Well, the homeowner's insurance of the people whose dog bit him came to him. He didn't ask for any money. He didn't seek anything. He was just going to put a Band-Aid on it and go on with his life. But they showed up at the door and they said, we'll give you $1,000 if you sign right here that you waive all further claims on this thing. It was, to them, it was easier just to give him $1,000 than ever have him come back and say, oh, my leg, you know, that kind of stuff that people do. So we got $1,000. Well, that's great. That's like an incredible blessing from God, right? Just totally unexpected. So they're thanking God for it. They're praying, this young couple, and they said, Wayne and Laura need this money more than us. Which I don't think we did, but, but that was what they thought. So they found one of those clever ways to give it to us without us being able to say, no, thank you. You know, but you guys really shouldn't do that. So they gave it to us, and we ended up with $1,000. It was a selfless righteousness. So I, I, I kind of think if I was them, and, and that happened to me, I would say, Laura, we got $1,000. But these guys were so in tune with the Lord that they were willing to um, give that money. In other words, they looked at it like, what are the, what's the, what are the odds of us just getting $1,000 out of, out of the blue like this, you know? So God must want us to use it for him. That's how they were thinking. And this poor slug and his wife, he's in seminary and they can barely survive, so let's just give them the $1,000. That's what they did. So it was really a wonderful opportunity for them to bless. They saw how unusual the circumstances were. So God sovereignly ordained that dog to be in a bad mood on that day and tear his leg off so that he could, well, bite him, so that he could get an extra $1,000 that they, they didn't have. And he could use it for God's work. That's how he saw it. And that was just a wonderful thing. So um, this couple was blessed in the bite, as they say. I don't know if they say that, because that doesn't happen very often. But, but it became a greater blessing to them by exercising a generous faith when they could have used that money as well. They really could have. They had a young child the same age as our daughter, and um, they were young. They were no better off than we were. So we might call the coming of that money at a key time a miracle. I mean, I think most people say, God, well, that was a miracle. Who, who would have expected that? But that selfless spirit of Christ turned that miracle into a, a greater miracle, a greater miracle. And that's what Christianity is, loving people more than we love ourselves. So that's an unusual miracle because it deals with money. Most miracles don't, but there's an example of one that did. Final thing about this um, is, the, is found in verse 28. Hey, there is no verse 28. 
Exactly. There's actually no record of Peter going down and doing this thing. So we are so far along now in understanding who Jesus is in the gospel. If he just says, do, go do this, we are to read that it was done. And they took care of this whole situation. So Peter did go to the lake shore and cast in his hook and drew out the fish. And behold, there was a stater and it paid for their temple tax. But it's not even here. He doesn't even bother to record the fulfillment of it. That's kind of interesting to me. Because by this time we should know if Jesus says it, it's going to happen. And he's God. So, and there's one other thing I think we should consider looking at this passage. You really see here how poor Jesus was. So, prosperity gospel preachers always try to claim that if Jesus lived today, he'd have a, a jet, you know, and the, a Rolex watch and the best suits and all that. Kind of that no, he was poor. He was, he was working class poor all the way up until the time he got baptized, and after that, he was more poor. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said he, he was a poor person. Now, there were Luke chapter 8, it says that there were people of prominence that helped support the whole apostolic band and Jesus traveling around. So their food and their lodging and things like that generally was taken care of, although Jesus did say he had no place to lay his head sometimes. So um, he was a poor man. There was not wealth in him. There was not tons of money. So the prosperity gospels always try to rationalize and say that Jesus was rich. He wasn't rich. There are rich godly men in the Bible, but he's not one of them. He lived a very poor, simple life. And he never took up collections at the Jesus crusade. He never did do that. I'm going to pass the bucket one more time because I hear some denarii jingling out there in some purses and some people are holding back. You've got to sow your seed to this ministry. And if you just sow your seed to this ministry with another several drachmas, God will abundantly pour out his life. Jesus didn't do that. Never did that. Never took money when he was preaching. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he didn't take money to the people he was preaching to either. He had support from other churches sometimes for further ministry, but he never took money from the people he was preaching to, ever. And he said he had a right to, but he waived that right, lest we give offense. It was exactly the same idea there. So um, there's not even a hint that Jesus ever asked for money. Paul says... In 2 Corinthians, he says, though rich, talking about Jesus, though rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. And that's more than just from coming from heaven to earth or coming from being God over everything to a human being. He became a poor human being. He was born in a manger. He, he died and was thrown in a, uh, he would have been thrown in a grave with criminals, just thrown in this, basically in a pit, except for Joseph of Arimathea, having to give him a tomb. He didn't have his own place to be buried or anything like that. Matthew Henry said, Has Christ pleased all the treasures in the depths of the seas and in the heart of the earth might have been laid at his feet? His poverty was voluntary. And he also points out that the poverty of Christ takes away the shame of poverty in other people. Most people in the world are very poor. I just came from a country where the, the poverty is incredible. I mean, it's just an extremely poor place. And Jesus was not ashamed to be poor. He didn't regard it as a shameful thing. Now, some people do shameful things and make themselves poor, but most poor people in the world, that's just the circumstances of life. It's just what they have to deal with. They're barely making it. And that's the way it's been ever since history began, you know, until it's sort of the modern era. But the modern era only goes so far around the world. It, and even in our own country, there's a lot of poverty. So that was a poverty Jesus shared and was glad to share and voluntarily shared. In life, he was never above being a working class poor person, ever. 
in terms of his own life. Comforts, I like comforts. Comforts are great, but that's not what life is about. He, he lived for other people, and so should we. That's how we should conduct ourselves and just uh, think like he did. That's what a godly person does. So when God blesses you with a miracle, pass it along too. Share it. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for these great words. What a weird miracle. It's so different. And yet, the power behind it coming to pass is incredible. The knowledge, the sovereign power over creation to pay a tax, a little tax. We're blown away by it. Peter was. And Father, we thank you that Matthew recorded it. It's meaningful for us to remember how great you are, how good you are, and how selfless you were in your conduct. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.